You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. My name is Nicole Feldman. Today we're going to talk about food, a subject I think we all enjoy. Here in the U.S., it's something we often take for granted, but finding nutritious food here is generally not that hard. But there's plenty of places in the world where that's not the case, and as climate change continues to change the world's landscape, our food choices may even change in the U.S. So what can we do to keep our food supply safe? Our guest today is one of the best people to answer this question. Ertharian Cousin is the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and director of the World Food Program. She's currently the Payne Distinguished Lecturer at the Center on Food Security and the Environment here at FSI. Ertharian, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, so let's start by talking a little bit about sustainable food systems, which is a phrase I think probably doesn't mean much to most people. So can you tell us what, what exactly it means and why this is something we should be thinking about? Well, we talk about food systems because we want to think about food from seeds in the ground to forks. What's on our fork? And uh, that takes in the entire, what we call, the system, from the production through the transport, storage, marketing, as well as the consumer purchase and availability of food. If sustainable food systems means just that, as we talk about growing food today, making systems work today, but in a way that will ensure that our children and grandchildren also have access to nutritious food. So while you were ambassador to the UN and director of the World Food Program, um, one of the things that you've seen is that fighting hunger is about a lot more than just growing food. So you had mentioned that in war zones like Syria, um, hunger was a factor in how the war began. And of course, the problems escalated since the fighting has gotten so intense, destroying crops, affecting commerce and all that. So tell us about that. How does hunger play a role in war? Hunger affects, uh, well, let me talk specifically about Syria first, and then we can go to the broader um, challenges. In Syria, the conflict has affected year-on-year productivity of the agricultural system. Um, population movement from the rural areas where the ongoing conflict occurs means that people can't farm. Um, When ISIS was a significant factor across Syria, even when farmers could grow food, you couldn't transport it into urban areas where people needed to buy food. And in the neighboring countries where they... historically were uh, importing food from Syria, you see an increase in the cost of food, which affects affordability of food for the population in those countries as well. So you create a challenge for food security for the population that is affected, that is living in the area, um, as well as for the neighboring countries that have put that had historically relied upon uh, food exports for part of their available food, the available food that consumers purchased. Right. So Syria is then just one country. If we were to have a war on a larger scale, what would the effects look like then? When we talk about food security, 
Food security is two of the factors that determine food security is availability and affordability. And when you have a, a, a conflict on a large scale, what that means is that there's less food grown because people can't farm, which makes food less available. And then what is available becomes inaccessible because it isn't unaffordable by the, by the average population. Um, and so conflict disrupts agricultural system and as a result makes food insecurity uh, a greater probability for the population in that country as well as in neighboring countries. War is one way that humans can affect food systems. Um, another one is climate change. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about some of the effects that climate change is going to have on food you know, around the world? Climate change creates, as simple as it said, changes in climate patterns. What we see are more extremes. So normal climate patterns like El Nino's and La Nina's that we've grown accustomed to over time, we see more intensity in those uh, climate patterns. We see the cycles between uh, floods and droughts become more, more sporadic and more frequent. And in other words, it becomes a challenge of not when will the rains come, if the rains will come. And these cycles affect those living, those who are the most uh, vulnerable, those living in marginal places, the most coastal areas, um, Areas that are decertified that already had challenges with access to water uh, become even more problematic. And so as a result, what we are seeing is that those many of the people that were relying upon subsistence agriculture in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia that had limited access to food um, prior to these climate extremes are now affected even more, requiring ever more assistance from the international community. Right. And I imagine that assistance will become more challenging over time. I'm thinking of living here in California. We recently experienced one of the worst droughts that we've had in a long time. And I grew up in Southern California. We would have droughts pretty much all the time, mm -hmm. but nobody really cared because mm -hmm. we still had water. And this last one, we started to actually see a real difference in what people were able to have. So I imagine if, you know, here in one of the richest countries in the world, we're having these problems. I imagine developing countries are having quite a bit more problems themselves that perhaps uh, developed countries will have a harder time responding to as time goes on? Definitely. If you look at places like the small island nation states, many of those states, I've talked to the presidents, 
And they're actually looking at places where they can move whole populations. Because as we see rising uh, ocean levels, the probability over time that not only will their agricultural land become more challenged, their ability to maintain those islands as habitable living spaces will become ever more challenged. Um, We know that in places where you have global temperature increases and you combine that with increasing populations and the and and uh, that increasing population results in greater demand for food the risk to food security with ch- climate change increases exponentially mm-hmm. So let's talk about how we can actually fix some of these problems. So while you're here at Stanford, you're focusing on how the private sector can help to end hunger through sustainable food systems. Yeah? Exactly. We know what works. We know creating sustainable, durable food systems will require certain items on the platform. And those items on the platform include Uh, access to drought-tolerant, drought-resistant seeds, the right fertilizers for the appropriate soils, the type of, uh, as they say, messy middle responses, the roads, the storage system, the cold systems that will support the movement of food even in a challenging climate. We know that it requires markets that are predictable, that will provide those farmers then with the financial incentive to make the changes that are necessary to make those systems work. That doesn't happen without private sector input across every piece of that value chain. Mm -hmm. Today, in too many places, we are relying upon government support or donor support And we don't have the business investments that are necessary to ensure that we can scale up what's working so that we're not just addressing the challenges of 5,000, 100,000 farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. We're addressing the challenges that are affecting all 100 million or 200 million farmers Mm -hmm. in sub-Saharan Africa. Gotcha. So how would that work? Like, how do we incorporate the private sector into these systems that are mostly government run? Well, it's already happening. Okay. And uh, private sector looks for opportunities to where they can invest, but also see a return on that investment. Sure. And every country requires a regulatory framework that will support the, the investment and the repayment of that investment. Mm-hmm. And then the systems that are in place to support that entire value chain so that when the private sector invests, if I'm a seed company and I invest in ensuring that there's retail seeds available at, a, at an affordable price for farmers, that I can then collect that money and that farmer can sell and I will have a business the next the next year. The same is true wherever I am on the on the food system, whatever the, 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 the investment or the particular tool that the private sector brings, what we need to ensure is that we have the regulatory system that is, that is required for them to invest, the, the businesses that will, that can absorb that investment and perform and repay that debt. And then to ensure that you have the, all of this, the pieces of the framework that are necessary from farm to fork so that we're not just talking about change for a season. 
we're talking about the kinds of change that begin to change lifestyles because they become durable change that is scaled up that meets the needs not just of small groups of farmers, but can support large um, communities of farmers. So when you actually go to implement these ideas, um, do you start in particular places and then scale up, or how does that work? You start in particular places and scale up. Excellent. And uh, (laughs) the, the reality of it is, if I'm just looking at Africa, um, when we start talking about private sector investment, Africa is a, is a continent; it's not a country. Sure. And so, they're going. You're going to have certain countries that where you are, where the regulatory frameworks that I talk about, the policies that are required are in place. The systems are in place to support the the private sector investment that is necessary. And those are the places that you'll begin. Uh, we have we've, we've worked on programs in Tanzania, in Rwanda. Uh, where we have public-private partnerships that will ensure that, as I said, we are investing for the long term. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you know most of the places we've talked about are fairly far away from the United States. So why should Americans care about this? What's the value for them of having these good, sustainable food systems in other countries? There's a cost to inaction. And the cost to an action is that poverty, lack of hope, lack of opportunity over there affects our lives here. We can't build walls high enough when people don't have the ability to feed their children. Mm-hmm. When uh, the inability to feed ch- your children results in diseases... Um, we saw that with the Ebola crisis, that uh, the transportation systems today don't limit problems over there. They are they can very easily end up on our doorstep. On our doorstep, those communication tools that we have provide information to people around the world that when they can't feed their children where they are, that there's possibilities and opportunity someplace else and people will move. I've never met anyone who wanted to leave home. But providing people with hope and opportunity, the ability to feed their own children, the ability to pay school fees to support health care, people will build in their own community. Prosperity there will support prosperity here at home. Not just because you have the stability that's required, but also because we live in a global marketplace. And the ability for people to continue to provide new markets, even for U.S. businesses, is directly related to their ability to continue to grow their own incomes. And so peace and prosperity universally will ensure that the life that we want for our children here in the United States is the life that our children can attain here at home because children over there also have hope and opportunity. Well, that sounds like a pretty good plan to me. Um, So thank you very much, Thurn, for joining us today, and hopefully we can make some of these ideas a reality. Thank you. And you've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford, or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.